Hello and welcome to the next episode of How Good It Is. It's the show that takes a closer look at songs from the rock and roll era and we check out some of the stories behind those songs and the artists who made them famous. My name is Claude Call and I am simultaneously in and out of my comfort zone. Remember to check out the website, howgooditis.com, and the Twitter, and the Instagram, and of course the Facebook page, which you can find over at facebook.com slash howgooditispod. Okay, typically I don't like to talk about current events during the show because I like the episodes to be what they call evergreen, but I think it's important in this case because it addresses the gap between this show and the previous one. And while I haven't been sick, and fortunately nobody especially close to me has gotten sick, I do know plenty of people who are in that particular boat. My wife is considered one of the more vulnerable types, so she's been self-quarantining in our uh, southern location uh, for the past several weeks. So it's been a bit of tough separation for us, all jokes aside. And and frankly, I lost my urge to do pretty much anything that wasn't work-related for a while. Not that I was motivated to do that, but at least, you know, I've still got a gig, right? There's so many other people, many of whom are family members, are out of work right now. But sitting around and doing nothing is not really good for me. It's not good for anybody. So as a result, I'm trying to find ways to break out of the ruts and the ennui that I found myself in. And likely, I hope you find a way to break out of your version of cabin fever that doesn't endanger anybody else. Please take care of yourself, and you are more than welcome to reach out to me through the tweet machine and the book of face and such. Take care of yourself, please, okay? Here is some 70s trivia for ye today. I was 10 years old in the summer of 1973, and one of the things that I remember about that time was how absolutely everyone was glued to their television sets watching the Watergate hearings. We saw literally weeks of testimony over 50 days, and if you want to see or relive it, you can find it online at the American Archive of Public Broadcasting. And if you had a day job then, you could catch the footage again in primetime, unedited on PBS. And as it happens, all of this became the inspiration for one of the most successful Broadway musicals of all time. What show was that? I'll have the answer to that question and the story behind it near the end of the show. This week, we're looking at Taylor Swift, but you have taken the time to listen instead of hitting the delete button, so good on you. Because here's the thing, my favorite comments and reviews come from the people who tell me that they don't like some of the songs that I talk about here, but they still manage to come away with a little more appreciation for it. And I think this is going to be one of those times for some of you. I'm not expecting you to turn into a huge Taylor Swift fan, but with a little luck, you might come away a little bit less likely to roll your eyes at the mere mention of her name. And today we're looking at Swift's hit song, Shake It Off, which was the first single from her album, 1989. At that time, Swift was still making that transition from country music to pop, so there was a lot of resistance from both sides of that line. Swift said in an interview with the BBC that it took some doing for her to overcome her fear of not being accepted. She said that eventually it takes not caring what people think about you step further, to kind of locking into the fact that people don't get you. She said, quote, it's kind of taking pride in the fact that you know who you are and it honestly doesn't matter if someone else doesn't want to understand you, which I think is a key component of maturity and something that doesn't come to a lot of people until a little bit later in life, if it comes at all. 
The song was written by Taylor Swift, along with producers Max Martin and Carl Schuster, who is known professionally as Shellback. And typically, it's clearly dedicated to the people who badmouth Swift for whatever reason, because they thought she was a country singer turning her back on her roots, because they thought she was a vapid pop singer, because they thought all she did was badmouth other people through her lyrics. Now, for what it's worth, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that she wrote about people being mean to her as she had already done in her 2010 single, Mean. And before I play the clip from that song, I want you to notice a couple of things. First, she's still got that country thing going on with the harmonies and the banjo. I kind of miss her use of the banjo. She used to use it a lot. And second, notice that it's a little more of a victim mode she's coming from. Oh, and one more thing. Listen carefully, because it's kind of interesting that the song opens cold with her singing the first word, but... Martin and Shellback actually let her first breath remain on the song, so it doesn't start with you, but with that quick intake of air, like she's gearing up for the argument. I'm going to amplify it a little bit here so it's easier for you to hear in the podcast context, but that it's there at all is kind of neat. You, with your words like knives and swords and weapons that you use against me, you... Have knocked me off my feet again Got me feeling like a nothing you With your voice like nails on a chalkboard Calling me out when I wounded you Picking on the weaker man And you notice the other thing that she does, and, and it's become kind of a staple for Taylor Swift, is that she does that break in the instrumentation where all the music stops and she sings a cappella for a short bit before the music resumes. It sets up just a little bit of tension that relieves itself as the song moves forward. I'm going to come back to that in a couple minutes, so just kind of keep it in the back of your head. Now, as I mentioned before the clip, Swift has a bit of a victim mentality going on in Mean, but she's got a different attitude four years later. In an interview with Time magazine, she said, she had to learn that people can say whatever they want about you at any time, and that can't be controlled. The only thing that can be controlled is how you react to that. In a Rolling Stone interview that appeared the same week as the Time article, uh, she said, quote, when you live your life under that kind of scrutiny, you can either let it break you or you can get really good at dodging punches. And when one lands, you know how to deal with it. And I guess the way that I deal with it is to shake it off, unquote. So why not take back the narrative, right? The other thing I think is notable is the jibe about Swift writing about people who were mean to her or who broke up with her or people she knew. And, and frankly, I don't get that criticism since we've certainly seen that in other musicians. The Beatles drew from all kinds of people and places in their lives to write about, including Paul McCartney's sheepdog, Martha, and on the same album, Mia Farrow's sister, Prudence. Alanis Morissette's biggest hit is a poison pen letter to an ex-boyfriend. Some of Bob Dylan's best work is aimed at someone he dislikes. So what's the big deal if Taylor Swift does the same thing? I don't know. 
Okay, now, as I noted, 1989 was Swift's big move into pop music, so she needed some hooks to make it sound poppier. And don't think my spell checker didn't have a problem with the word poppier. But when you've got a solo singer and a genuine pop sound, these days it's tough to come up with a bridge that doesn't involve a guest singer or a totally electronic sound. Now, Swift kind of sort of split the difference by augmenting her voice electronically and then going low-tech for the bridge. First, she does a spoken section with all the low frequencies equalized out, and then she does a little rap section, which is little more than drums and hand claps. She's also changed the focus of the words to address the listener directly. Hey, hey, hey! Just think, while you've been getting down and out about the liars and the dirty, dirty cheats of the world, you could have been getting down to this sick beat. My ex-man brought his new girlfriend. She's like, oh my god, I'm just gonna shake into the And did you notice that once again she's done that bit where the music stops briefly and it's not until after she resumes singing that the music comes back. She's actually gotten better at setting up that tension, holding it for nearly a full second and then boom, releasing it as the song ramps its way toward the ending. Now, believe it or not, there is some controversy attached to the song from a legal standpoint. In 2017, about three years after Shake It Off was released, a pair of songwriters named Sean Hall and Nathan Butler sued Swift for copyright infringement over some of the lyrics. You see, Hall and Butler are the composers of the song Play Is Gonna Play, which went to number 81 on the Billboard Hot 100 for the group 3LW in 2001. Their contention is that this section is the part that was stolen. So Swift's lawyers moved for dismissal of the lawsuit, arguing that the phrases are basically in the public domain. Remember, it's 2001 to 2014 at this point. And about a month later, a U.S. district judge ruled in her favor, saying it was too commonplace to be copy-protected part of the song. He wrote, and I love this, that, quote, By 2001, American popular culture was heavily steeped in the concepts of players, haters, and player haters to render the phrases Players gonna play or haters gonna hate standing on their own. No more creative than runners gonna run, drummers gonna drum, or swimmers gonna swim. The concept of actors acting in accordance with their essential nature is not at all creative. It is banal, unquote. However, in late 2019, that decision was overruled by a federal appeals court and sent back to the U.S. District Court on the grounds that the district court was the final authority on the worth of an expressive work. Essentially, that means that as of this recording, over six months after that judge uh, decision, the case is awaiting jury trial. The song made its debut through an interesting series of uh, hints that Swift dropped. First, on August 4th, 2014, she posted a video on Instagram in which she pushes the number 18 in an elevator. Two days later, she took to Twitter, tweeting a picture of a clock reading 5 o'clock. And the day after that, she tweeted a screenshot from Yahoo.com. Finally, on August 13th, she appeared on The Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon. And during that interview, she announced that a live streaming session would take place on Yahoo at 5 p.m. on August 18th. 
and during that live stream, Swift announced that the 1989 album would be released in October, and then she premiered Shake It Off as the lead-off single. The song debuted at number 45 on the Billboard Radio Songs chart, and at number 12 on the Mainstream Top 40 chart. It also managed to appear on the Country Airplay chart in the number 58 position, but it only spent that one week on the chart, probably because the country stations only played her record out of sheer inertia. Shake It Off became the 22nd song to make its debut on the Billboard Hot 100 in the number one position, selling over a half million digital copies in its first week available. It spent a second week in the top slot, then it dropped to number two and stayed there for eight weeks before moving back up to the top when the album was released. The song spent four non-consecutive weeks at number one and 24 non-consecutive weeks in the top ten. And at one point, Shake It Off was knocked out of the number one slot by her second single from 1989 called Blank Space, which makes Taylor Swift the first female artist to replace herself in the entire history of the Hot 100 chart. The song was also number one in Canada, Australia, Mexico, and a couple of other places, and it was top ten throughout most of Europe, including the number two position in the UK. Now, there were a couple of covers of the song, mostly in live performances. Having said that, however, Ryan Adams covered the entire 1989 album in 2015, but he framed it as more of a, uh, a reinterpretation of Swift's songs. Think of its sound as falling somewhere between Bruce Springsteen and The Smiths. The album debuted on the album chart at number seven on the Billboard album chart. That's one position ahead of Swift's 1989 album, but we should note that Taylor Swift's 1989 was already in its 48th week on the chart at that point. And while this reinterpretation did get generally positive reviews, some critics thought that Shake It Off was the weakest track on Adam's album. And this isn't a cover exactly, but... Also in 2015, in April, the comedy-slash-music show Lip Sync Battle featured Dwayne The Rock Johnson pitted against Jimmy Fallon to see who could do a better job of lip-syncing a pop song. And one of the songs Johnson chose was Shake It Off. Now, I'll post a clip on the website. It's kind of fun. But the Dwayne Johnson fun doesn't end there, and here's where things come full circle in a way. Remember the lyrics from the 3LW song? Right? Play is going to play, and haters they're going to hate, ballers they're going to ball. Well, as it happens, around that same time, Dwayne Johnson's HBO show Ballers was about to debut, and in episode 8, which appeared in August, just a few months after uh, Lip Sync Battle, what do we see The Rock singing in his car? Who knew? Dwayne Johnson is a Swifty. There you go. And now it's time to answer today's trivia question. Back on page two, I asked you about the Broadway musical that was inspired by the Watergate hearings. Well, according to an article in the New York Times in June of 1975, the show's co-creator and producer Michael Bennett said he was watching the hearings unfold on TV and he felt frustrated by all the falsehood and the apathy that seemed to pervade the country at the time. He says in the article that he wanted to do something on stage that would show people being 
being honest with one another. Bennett had also been pondering putting together a show that was composed entirely of dancers, and the two things came together in January of 1974. Now, at this point, the specific details in the stories begin to diverge, largely because of a lawsuit involving the play's authorship, but the bottom line is that Bennett attended a series of late-night sessions with dancers, wherein they talked for hours about what they were doing and what they were after, the whys and the hows of their careers and so forth, and Bennett recorded these sessions, getting about 30 hours of stories. He said he listened to the recordings for a few months, wondering what to do with them, when he says he realized that these dancers were auditioning their lives for him. The audition idea took hold, and Bennett joined up with uh, writer Nicholas Dante to turn the material into a script they could produce. From there, it took some convincing to get Marvin Hamlish to do the score, and Edward Keelan was brought in to write lyrics. And that script became a chorus line. And the show's initial Broadway run went from July 1975 through April 1990, running for 6,137 performances altogether. So, thanks, Richard Nixon! that's a full lid on another edition of How Good It Is. If you are enjoying the show, please take the time to share it with someone and maybe even leave a rating somewhere. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can email me at howgoodpodcast at gmail.com or you can follow the show on Twitter or Instagram at howgooditis. You can also visit, like, and follow the show's Facebook page at facebook.com slash howgooditispod or you can check out the show's website, howgooditis.com, where you might find a few extra bits. Thanks, as usual, to Podcast Republic for featuring the show. And next time around, we're going to find out how good it is when we meet the leader of the pack. Thanks for listening, and I will talk to you next time. Next time.